Hi, everyone. This is Peter Tong. Welcome to another episode of Peter, How Does the Government Work? I am here with my friends Carrie Mackay and Dia Suwa Singh. And today we're going to talk about the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and legal rights. Now, legal rights is such a focus of the Charter, it actually takes up eight sections of the Charter from Section 7 to Section 14. So what I'm going to do today is briefly touch on each of those sections so that our listeners can understand the legal framework that protects them if they get themselves in legal trouble. Let me put it that way. So Section 7 says, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person and the right not to be deprived, therefore, except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. So basically, that means you have the right to be free and do what you want as long as it's within the framework of the principles of fundamental justice. Well, what does that mean? Well, that's what sections 8 through 14 of the Charter do. They define basically the principles of fundamental justice. So I'm not going to spend any more time right now on section seven, and we'll start talking about the other sections that define what that fundamental justice is. And section eight is search and seizure. Every person has the right to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure. So of course, in our country, we have a whole lot of laws that protect your privacy, and we have mechanisms where breaches of that privacy can be considered reasonable. So let's talk about circumstances where that might be. The police, for example, might think you're involved in a crime and they want to search your home or your business. Well, they just can't show up and do that. They need to get permission from a judge by a way of what we call a warrant. Now, the way that a warrant works is the police department and the Department of Justice have to make an application to a judge for why they should be allowed to breach your privacy and search your home or your business, for example. So they have to lay out basically what crime you're suspected of, what evidence in very broad terms that they have that you've committed this crime and what would justify them having the ability to collect more evidence against you through search and seizure. So they they have to have permission from a judge that there's some reasonable basis for them violating your rights and looking through your stuff, basically. And I guess one, one important thing that we can mention at this point is this right against search and seizure not only applies to people, the case law is very clear. It also applies to businesses. I just can't show up at your business and start going through your business records because I think you've done something illegal unless I have permission from a court to do so. So is that just a blanket kind of search that they say, oh, we can search your home or your business? Or are there specific permissions granted for things inside that location? So for example, I mean, I, I guess could the judge be specific and say, well, you can take that person's computer, but you can't take the pile of hard drives, which is a bad example, but probably goes to what I'm getting at. Not particularly, because typically what happens is 
the search warrant provides a basis for what they're looking for, and they're allowed to look for that. But if they find something else suspicious while they're in there, they're allowed to continue, right? Which is why when police end up in somebody's house, they start peeking under beds and stuff like that to see if they can find, you know, guns or drugs or or whatever, right? And, of course, there's a lot of case law in this country, and I presume most other countries around search and seizure, and the big one in, in this country is drug searches, right? Because if you read most police reports, most policemen are equipped with a better nose than a search dog because they've never stopped a car where they haven't smelt the smell of fresh marijuana, which gives them an excuse to look further into what's going on in the car without a warrant. So that you Got can it. decide for yourself whether that's a premise or not. Right. And there's also the other thing that we should touch on when we're talking about search and seizure is that your expectation of privacy changes depending on where you are. There's a really high threshold for getting permission to search your home, for example. The old expression, a person's home is their castle, holds true in Canada. And your expectation of privacy in your own home is very high. Your expectation of privacy while you're walking down the street is much less, though. So police will often stop somebody, and although on the surface they may not have the legal right for search and seizure, they will say, well, we needed to search this person for officer safety because they might have been carrying a gun or a knife, which right. ultimately allows them to do a pat-down and a search without any other premise for the search. And then, gee, magically they find a bag of drugs or whatever, whatever, while they were searching for officer safety. And and there's been, been some really interesting cases around that. For example, are you allowed to search through somebody's backpack because there might be a knife or a gun in there? The current cases say probably not as long as you can take the backpack away and secure it. Okay, then it's no longer a danger to you. Right. So you don't have the excuse without a warrant to go through it. Interesting. But for the longest time, while these cases were evolving, of course, police would stop somebody on the street and shake them down completely and go through their backpack and their sneakers and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Is that really where the limitations then come in? Or the or is it interpretation? Or is it what the judgment is at that time? Uh -huh. Like in terms of the application or all the above? Well... How can I answer that? I guess the argument of the police officer is always about safety, right? And it's their interpretation about how far they're allowed to go. And then if I'm a defense oh, attorney, I'm going to push back against that and say, you had no reason to go through that backpack. It was in your possession. The person you're of interest could no longer have access to it or its contents. So it no longer contributed to your safety. Right? right. So you didn't have a right to go through it. And there's been really funny cases where, you know, we had to pat this person down because the pocket in the front of their hoodie looked bulgier than it should have been. And all those kinds of make it up on the street kind of things. But so the reason that they may be searching the person may be just kind of an arbitrary sort of excuse because they wanted to search that person. Yeah, exactly. And we still see that. And we probably always will because, you know, that's the dynamics of day-to-day -day policing. But but the real legal procedure is go gather your evidence, go to a judge and get a warrant for wh why you need this evidence, right? 
And an interesting one that I've never agreed with is if a man particularly is accused of sexual assault and they're taken into custody, a medical swab could be taken of their genitals without a warrant because it's considered to be urgent before, you know, something can happen to cover up that evidence. I've I've never agreed with that, but that's the current state of the law. You could imagine if if the same procedures applied to women, I don't think that would be allowed to go forward. Wow. You're you're required without a warrant to provide us with a swab. Well, mine's a little shaken here. Is it then a case of like what becomes admissible later, or is that just like because that's within the right or the parameter, then that, it, that is what it is. Search and seizure always become part of a criminal case if it's involved. There's always okay. an argument on whether, you know, even if there's a warrant, we, as a defense attorney, I may challenge the basis for the warrant and say, you know, because I'm allowed to ask for a copy of that warrant, so I have the same information that was presented to the judge before the warrant was issued, I can challenge that warrant if there's something in there that I think is untrue or exaggerated or that the judge isn't a warrant based on incomplete or incorrect information. I can then have that warrant quashed in any and everything that came into evidence as part of that warrant would then get thrown out. Yeah, makes sense. It's the same as the fresh marijuana cases, right? You have to argue that, you know, that Officer Smith is, is not is not a, a trained German shepherd. <laughs> he probably couldn't smell fresh marijuana out of the half an ounce that was in a plastic baggie in the back seat from 30 feet behind the car. Yeah, yeah. And then it was a premise to shake down whoever was in the car. So how wow. does that work in terms of like stopping vehicles, for example? Like if they're driving completely normally and there's no seemingly no reason to stop them but the police are just on their tail and want to stop them for whatever reason how do they or can they do that did the police have the ability to just pull anybody over at will or do they have to have a reason to actually pull them over well they're supposed to have a reasonable suspicion of something but it's another case where you know oh i saw them swerve a bit so they might have been impaired or the rear left taillight was intermittent so i had to stop them for safety reasons you always hear about the taillight it's always the tail. Well, well, I want to be a bit careful here because I don't want to be too disparaging. But I'll say it this way. The rumor always was that policemen, for if they didn't have another excuse, were always famous for breaking a taillight on the way by. Uh, oh, right. I think I remember hearing stuff like that. Right? Yeah. So that they could say, well, that you know, that taillight was out and we had to stop them for safety. But the reason the taillight without you know by the time it gets to the court is because they happen to hit it with their nightstick on the way by i'll just say say that as a as a rumor right well i mean but that does fairly frequently come up in if you watch like true crime series or whatever that's the prime example though that they give for pulling a vehicle over right so whether or not it's true in practice it certainly comes up in things that are alleging to document what has actually happened in a case, right? You know, and, and funny how typically it's the driver's side taillight because that's the side of the car the police officer was coming up the car on, right? Right. Just thought, yes, of course yeah. it is. 
Yep. Saying, you know, or any time that there's a there's a police incident where the police officer unholsters his gun, you'll always see in the police report that someone yelled gun. Well, guess who yelled gun? Probably the police officer, whether yep. or not he saw a gun, because the witnesses later, all they could testify to is there must have been a gun because somebody yelled gun. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> Oh, I bet that's happened a, a few times. Uh, that happens a lot. And that's, huh. these are all these sort of things that, that happen on the street and sort of separates the practicality of law enforcement from the, li- the legal rights as they exist on paper. We spend a lot of time, or defense attorneys, I should say, I'm not one anymore, spend a lot of time in court challenging warrants and searches and all that. And, uh, you know, one of the expressions is almost every drug case is a search case, right? If the search was valid and the drugs were found in a correct manner, then that person's probably going to get convicted of a drug offense. If the search can somehow be challenged and thrown out, then there's no conviction. So that's usually how drug cases are dealt with. They usually almost always turn into search issues. That makes sense. Oh my gosh. Thank God I'm not an attorney of any sort. So with all that cheery stuff. <laughs> but I, I, I guess the brief summary of that is our courts had the cases and the mechanism to protect people against unreasonable search and seizure. And and the and the tool tools are, are there, right? Right. The next one is section nine, arbitrary detention. Everyone has the right not to be arbitrarily detained or imprisoned. Which is why in Canada, if you're arrested or detained, you have to be put before a judge or a magistrate within 72 hours to see if you should be released on some conditions or what we call bail, right? So the police have up to 72 hours to put you in front of an official, but no longer than that. So. They can't just sort of tuck you away for days or weeks at a time. Do most things come down to the wire? Do they come, like most things come down to that 72 hours or is it all? No, basically the only reason it's 72 hours is you might get arrested on a Friday of a long weekend and we can't get you in front of a judge until Tuesday. Typically, typically if you're arrested, you're, you're either released on conditions by what's called consent or the crown or the defense attorney and the crown attorney agree that this person can be released and they set conditions or they're in front of the judge usually within 24 hours. Like if you're arrested on a Wednesday, Thursday morning, you're going to be in front of the judge for a bail hearing. And was that why in the case of the, and I should note right now that we're recording this on April 30th and there is currently another occupation happening in Ottawa. So we'll see how that turns out. I'm sure it will come up in discussion as time goes on. But is that why it was kind of notable in the first occupation of Ottawa that, am I I correct in remembering that people were able to be seen in front of a judge on that weekend? Is that true that that happened? It certainly was. And that was notable because it doesn't normally happen. (laughs) Yeah. And it was pissed because of, shall I even just say it, the kind of people, I'm going to just say it, the kind of people involved. I'm just going to put that out there. Yeah, but the the Ottawa court system actually set up special courtrooms and whatever so people could be considered for release right away. And I have to say, I 
I agree with Dia that if it's been a different, like a Black Lives Matter protest or something, that may not have happened. But that again, yeah, because I was going to uh, say, like, was there other than it being generally a bunch of middle or upper middle class white people? Like, was there any other administrative reason that they might have had to do that? Like, was there just not enough space to hold all these people, or like, was it just you know the overall situation that led for that to happen? I think they talk about it in the docket podcast, Carrie. That you had sent me. I think they talk about the rationales behind that timing and what, to Peter's point, what was put in place, like in preparation of such activity, and then other things that sort of were just able to happen. Right. I guess that doesn't quite answer the question, but that's what I recall. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I will find that podcast again and link it in the show notes for everyone. And uh, I will say that I love the Docket podcast. Michael Sprout and Emily Tamman are fabulous. They're both lawyers in Ottawa and do really great work on all sides of things. So yeah, so I'll make sure to link that, but I definitely need to go listen to that again. I don't know if they set it up again. I don't know if Peter's aware of what they did this time in preparation. I I, I assume they would have done the same thing. And I think you know, we 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 kind of dismissed it on they were treating these folks as a special group, but I think legitimately there were concerns about the volume of people that were going to have to be processed through the legal system, right? They set up some ways to move things through because, frankly, most people that were involved in in those protests were likely to be candidates for release. Conditions could be set where they could live safely in the community. It was only sort of the leaders and the most militants who were felt that they w- wouldn't follow conditions set forward by the court that were detained. The basic overriding thing out of their bail hearings, I guess, was the court felt that they couldn't set conditions that these people would follow, so they weren't going to release them back into the community. Right. Got it. Yeah. And did that apply equally to people who were from Ottawa joining the protest versus people who were from outside of Ottawa? Because I know a lot of the people who were not from Ottawa were released on the condition that they leave Ottawa within 24 hours and leave Ontario within 72 hours, I believe it was. I presume that did not apply for residents of Ottawa. And how did, do you know how that worked? I I don't know what conditions would have been set on their bail for for people with conditions of Ottawa, but there might have been conditions like they weren't allowed to associate with, and it would have been a list of the leaders of the protest or something like that, or they weren't allowed to. It may have even gone as far as, you know, not allowed to associate with particular people or not allowed to do or not allowed to congregate in certain places or all kinds of things, right? Well, bail conditions can be can be fairly broad, basically trying to set conditions so people couldn't start the protest up all over again. Yeah. So the next few sections talk about what your rights are if you get if you get arrested on arrest or detention. You have the right to be informed promptly of the reasons therefore. In other words, you have to tell me what I'm being charged with. You can't just say we're arresting you because we think you did something bad. Now, now, typically, when that's done at a very early stage, and that may actually be done at the arrest by the arresting officer at the time where they're reading somebody's rights to them, they will say, you're being arrested for, for example, assault, and they typically say something like, or other similar crime. So if as they're investigating, they find out more things, they can add more charges. But you need an indication on, on what you're being detained for. You have the right to retain and instruct counsel without delay and be informed of that right. So when you're arrested, you're allowed 
to call either your attorney and retain them and get instructions on what you should do, or if you're you don't have an attorney or your attorney is not available, you can speak for a staff lawyer for legal aid in your province who will give you give you basic instructions on what you should do now that you've been arrested and detained. And and the very short version of that advice is don't say anything, right? You have a legal right not to incriminate yourself. You have a legal right not to testify in your own trial. And when the cops are interrogating you, you should use those rights. Okay, burning question. I want to know how many people have personal lawyers that they're just like ready on the hop. Just like, I mean, I have a personal lawyer, but not criminal lawyer. So <laughs> like, I don't know, like, you know, it's not like a, you know, a real estate contract. So what happens then? You just hope that they take up the phone and get you somebody else. Come on, come on do you, you don't keep a criminal defense attorney on retainer? Um, no, but do I need to? Like, is this something I need to like look into? <laughs> no, I'm I don't prepared. plan on breaking the law anytime no. soon. Well, but. exactly. So then you don't need a defense attorney on on retainer. And I've been seeing a bit. I mean, I'm a former defense attorney, so yeah. If I get arrested, I know who I'm going to call. Um, so, actually, I'd like your Rolodex. Oh my god, I'm so dating myself with the Rolodex. But I'd like your yeah. call list, please. Yeah, but most most. People, I have to say, don't unless they're long involved in the system. Don't have a a lawyer, and they end up talking to a legal aid staff lawyer, and they get the very basic advice to say, you know, don't say anything because you know, you know, where police collect most of their evidence. I guess people saying something. Yeah. So, and I just want to clarify too that the thing that you will often see on TV is the all the talk about, you know, your your rights being read to you at the time of rest. And uh, we do not have Miranda rights in Canada. And I presume we have bits and pieces of that, but we don't have that whole complex of thing. We do have a very similar thing, but they're not called Miranda rights, which is why, you know, when people said they were having the Miranda rights violated, you know, they didn't really know what they were talking about. Because they, they don't you, have them here. And you're told when you're arrested that you do have the right to, to get instructions from counsel and you do have, have the rights for bail and all that stuff. That's what's included in our arrest procedures, right? And at the time, the officer will let's say typically tell you you're being charged with this or other similar crime. And then the last part of Section 10 is that you must be released if your detention is not required or not legal. In Latin, that's called habeas corpus, bring us the body. But we basically talked about that. The way that we deal with that in most cases in Canada is by having this bail hearing or the release hearing within 72 hours of detention, right? And then a judge gets to determine whether or not you should continue to be detained or whether you can be released on conditions or recognizance. So that all happens at that like secondary stage then, Peter? Like that will happen as I say, anywhere from sort of twenty-four hours to seventy-two hours after you've been detained. Oh, uh, okay. But first now typically the way that it goes is all of these cases are are put in front of a crown attorney and the crown attorney will probably set a set of conditions without a judge on the vast majority of the people that have been detained and they'll be released without ever appearing in front of a judge. Paperwork is just signed and they're released with conditions that they have to follow. And then the other people 
where it's contentious whether it's safe to have them in the community or not, the crown attorney and the defense attorney will go in front of the judge and argue why the person should or shouldn't be released into the community. So that's all happening at that stage. Okay, back on track. And certainly, I won't speak for the other provinces, but certainly the thing that will keep you in custody most frequently in Manitoba is if you have a history for not following court orders that have already been set. For example, if I've set bail conditions for you and then in a few days or a week later you get rearrested because you're not following those bail conditions, like you didn't leave Ottawa or you didn't leave Ontario, then you're more likely to be detained because the court will say, well, clearly you're not following the conditions you were given the opportunity to set or given the opportunity to follow. So our only choice is to detain you in custody. Yeah, and that whole breach of conditions situation too, I was, uh, you know, as we discussed this, I was watching the uh, Justice Committee session yesterday that was about changes to the criminal code and what is it, the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act? Is that what it's called? And, you know, and that was one of the big pieces of that was the fact that, you know, if somebody is really strong conditions and then they are found to be using substances, they are basically in breach of their conditions and immediately end up going back to jail. And, you know, when we're talking about something that many of us would classify as a health issue rather than a justice issue, that is problematic. And, you know, the conversation about reforms going on there. But yeah, it's interesting what things can be considered as breaking the conditions of your release, whether that is talking to somebody you're not supposed to be talking to. I'd be curious in the case of the, especially in terms of the Ottawa protests from a few months ago, I guess, what is that kind of made up of? It's like, so if you, say you get a text from somebody that you're not supposed to be talking to, but you don't reply, are you still okay? Or can they pull you back in on that? Yeah, no, in in that case, you would still be okay. Where it becomes a challenging issue sometimes is sometimes a current attorney will try to set a condition like you can't be associated with any members of this particular street gang. Well, that's too broad. Right. Right? Because how do you prove that I knew this person that I was talking to was a member of that particular street gang, right, yeah. or, or, or whatever? So, and sometimes it goes down to somebody that's got a long history with gangs. There might actually be a list of names in the release conditions that says you're not allowed to associate with the following, you know, five people, ten people, whatever, who are who are known gang members and whatever, and the courts see that as specific enough. So then we move on to sort of legal rights in Section 11 for those charged with an offense. So what does that, what rights do I get if I've been charged with a criminal offense? Remember, this is, this is criminal stuff. So we talked about this. You get to be informed with unru- without unreasonable delay of what you're being charged with, of the specific offense. You get to be tried within a reasonable time. And the Supreme Court has said over the last number of years that they basically have two years to push your case through the court system. If not, that's an unreasonable delay. And the cases, regardless of the charges, regardless of their severity, could be dropped unless there's a legitimate excuse of why this is taking more than two years. Out of curiosity, was that happening more during the pandemic that they would be able to use that as a rationale for why people were not getting moved through as quickly as they should have been? I honestly don't know the answer to that question okay. because I haven't followed it. I can tell you that before, the whole reason that the court 
made these rulings is there were court cases where people were being detained and it was taking, you know, three and four and five years for the case to make its way through the system while the person still hadn't been convicted of anything and was being detained. So the Supreme Court thought that that was way too long and that was unreasonable. So then, then the justice system spent five years scrambling to speed up their processes and concentrate on the cases that they were really concerned with to try and, and deal with, with this backlog. It became the, the, the sole focus of courts all across the country for, for months and years to try to move cases through because serious cases were getting were getting dropped just because they were taking way too long. So out of curiosity, just for your opinion on this, do you feel like as somebody who previously practiced in this area, do you feel like two years is fair or reasonable, or do you feel like it should be expedited further from that? I think two years is the right balance. I mean, two years is a long time. The cases are often complex and and difficult, and just gathering evidence and preparing a defense and all that can can take time. So I, I think two years is about the right balance. That makes sense. And that would be what my thought would have been as well, because it is, like you said, complex to build a case and develop that strategy for when you do go to trial. But, uh, you know, I was you know, really just curious from your perspective how that fits into both a person who is, you know, potentially sitting there detained uh, into their perspective, as well as yours as somebody who did defend those those people. Right. So that's. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I think two years is about the right balance. So under 11, you have the right to be tried in a reasonable time, which we talked, we just talked about. Uh, not be compelled to be a witness in the proceedings against that person in respect of the offense. In other words, you can't be compelled to testify against yourself. Right. Right. Um, you're presumed innocent until proven guilty. Not cannot. Not be denied reasonable bail without just cause, which is why we have bail hearings that go in front of judges. Section F talks about military tribunals. We'll skip that. Uh, Has the right not to be found guilty on any act or omission unless at the time of the omission it is constituted an offense under Canadian or international or war crimes law. So, in other words, it's Probably not criminal if you made a error of omission, except in circumstances and in in circumstances I can think of, if you're not appropriately caring for and feeding a child, that kind of omission is a criminal offense. Legitimately forgetting to lock the safe and having all your boss's money stolen is probably not a criminal offense. Makes sense. It might get you fired, but it probably won't get you arrested. But if you're not feeding it, well, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> but if but if you're not feeding or caring for a child, that's an omission that's criminal. So there's just an example of sort of the two differences. H. If finally acquitted of an offense, you will not be tried for that offense again. So in other words, as a, as, as the state or as the crown attorney, I can't keep coming back and trying you over and over and over again if you've been found not guilty. Now, this is the last one. I is an important one, too. If found guilty in an offense, and if the punishment of the offense has been varied between the time of the commission of the offense and the time of sentencing, you're to benefit from the lesser punishment. 
Now, a very good example of that is drug cases. If you get arrested and charged for uh, a drug offense that you did 15 years ago, the penalty for that drug offense 15 years ago is probably much less than the current penalties today, but you benefit from whatever the penalties were at the time of the offense, not what they are now. And when you think about it, that makes sense because you can't be held responsible for a risk that didn't exist at the time you committed the offense. And I guess on the flip side of that, though, too, there would be people who would potentially be incarcerated for charges involving cannabis. And then if they are being tried now, while cannabis is legal, they yeah. would be they would receive the benefit of that no longer being a criminal offense, correct? Correct. And, and, and that, that provision makes perfect sense to me because it's, it's assumed that when you're committing a crime, you know what your risks are right you know you at least in some broad sense know what the potential penalties could be or how serious the penalties could be so they can't make that a moving target all these years later right so i just want to go back to h for a second so it just it makes me think of the dna cases and i don't know if this was something that would have necessarily happened right but for example so if somebody was acquitted of an offense and then Later, they were there was clear DNA evidence that came up that would have convicted them. They still cannot be retried for that defense, correct? Correct. They've already been they've okay. already been found non guilty. You don't get to keep going back until you get it right or wrong, as the case may be. <laughs> right. That's just that just doesn't happen. All right. Yeah. So that's um. Where are we? Twelve. Section twelve. Everyone has the right not to be subjected to cruel and unusual treatment or punishment. Now, where this comes up most often in a Canadian context is solitary confinement. Yes. Right? Solitary confinement is considered to be a severe and cruel punishment and should be used only for very limited periods of time over conditions like safety and should not be used administratively as sort of additional punishment. And I know in one of the earlier podcasts, we talked about the situation of a prison inmate who refused to take antipsychotic drugs. And when they weren't on their antipsychotic drugs, they were violent and unpredictable. So the court ruled in that case that they could be detained in a solitary manner for their safety and the safety of others because they chose not to take the drugs. So they said, we can't force you to take the drugs, but that doesn't mean that we can't isolate you from the rest of the population for your safety and their safety, right? Right. So so it's not, the solitary confinement thing isn't absolute, but in Canada, there's certainly a large number of lawyers and groups that are working to make that as limited as possible. He's putting you in a small cell all by yourself for long periods of time is considered to be cruel. Yeah. You know, and that's also why in Canada we don't have penalties like stoning and those sorts of things. Thank God. Yikes, stoning. Hoping it doesn't make a comeback. <laughs> no, I don't I don't think it will, but you know, we live in strange times. We sure do. Fingers crossed they don't get too strange or too much stranger. 
Did you really just put that out in the universe? Do not I mean, you, you are the one, you are the one who said, hopefully that doesn't make a comeback. So. Yeah. Okay. I, I guess I'm going to have to live with that karma. Um, just putting that out. Section 13, I really like protection against self-incrimination. So if I'm testifying in one criminal case, the evidence that I give that might incriminate me in something criminal can't be used against me, right? So, so if I'm if I'm testifying again, I'm coming back to the drug cases because they all fall for so well into these days. So I'm being called by the prosecution because the person they're prosecuting used to be my, you know, my drug trafficking partner, and I testify to that. The police can't then take my testimony to prove that I was a drug trafficker and arrest me for that. They can go back and find other ways to prove that I was a drug trafficker and arrest me based on that, but they can't arrest me based on my testimony in the other case. Yeah, I mean, it's not the same, obviously, but it kind of links back to the point that you don't have to testify in your own trial, right? It's that's right. Kind of related, yeah. Yeah, and 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 you can understand why they need to make this kind of provision, or there's a whole bunch of people that aren't going to testify because they're not going to get themselves, you know, hung up in criminal proceedings because of something that's going to come out in court, right? Right. Now, now, frankly, if people are concerned about that, they may not testify anyway, or if they're compelled to testify, they may have absolutely no memory of what happened. You know, the famous, famous case with the uh, one of the police departments outside of Winnipeg, where a police officer was charged with some criminal offenses. And strangely enough, every police witness that was called to the stand couldn't even remember what shoes they were wearing that day, let alone what happened on the day of that case. Awesome. Quality. Quality right there. Yeah. You know, and I was there for part of the testimony of the chief of police, and he was even asked what he had for breakfast that morning, and he couldn't recall. And that wouldn't be the first time that I've heard of that happening in a situation no, like no. that. So, so that happens too. So, so yeah, this this right is important, but I I'm, I, I have to say that for people that are involved in the criminal justice system, they probably don't feel that that protection actually exists, so they do their best not to testify at all. Makes sense. You know? Because they, they don't want to risk stringing themselves up, but it uh, it does it does exist. And uh, and the last one, if you don't speak either one of the official languages, or you have communications difficulties, or you're deaf, you're in, entitled to have a court interpreter so that you understand what's happening in the criminal proceedings against you, which makes sense. Now, the only sort of the lawyer story that I'll that I'll tell about that. Because it, it's all interesting to me when I'm involved in cases with, with an interpreter, I've had situations with a question is asked. There's a whole conversation that goes on between the witness and the interpreter. And then the interpreter says, yes. Right. And I'm like, no, no, no. What was, what was that four minutes of back and forth yeah. before we got to the yeah? Exactly. I'm, I'm entitled to know what that is. You know? Right. Yeah. Because I mean, if it's clarification, that's one thing. But if it's you know anything else, then that's no. That that you you said more than yes during that four minute conversation. Though I need to know what the content of that is. I mean, both sides need to know what the content of that conversation is. To be fair. Right. 
I mean, and especially if that's mm-hmm. happening in front of a jury. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 it, and it often does. And, and, you know, but I mean, it's, we, I understand why that right is there and it should be there. If you have proceedings against you, it's only fair that you, you know what's going on, right? You would, yeah. You wouldn't want either any of us to be standing trial in a language that we didn't understand, so we didn't know what the proceedings meant. Absolutely. And those, and a, and a very brief overview, are the eight sections that talk about your legal rights in the Charter. So it's basically sort of what people have a broad understanding of. I, If I'm being charged with a crime, I have a right to know where it is. I have a right to be in the community, either with no conditions or on conditions, unless there's a justifiable reason that I have to be detained. I have a right to be tried fairly and quickly and all the other stuff for collecting evidence and whatever that goes with that. My, my privacy is protected to a certain level. The fact that I don't have to testify against myself is protected and things like that. And and just from what we know of, of television or movies or the police, I think that's what most people understand. Yeah. Because a lot of so. sort of crime drama and stuff happens around when these rights are not being followed, right? When a police department or or somebody like that does something unfairly or, you know, stuff like that. And that's where these stories come from, right? And that's what I have for legal rights for now. Wow, that's, lots of, that's a lot to get stuff. It's a lot, but I think it's also sort of a part of rights that people understand a fair bit about. They understand sort of what the police and the justice system, at least in very general terms, are allowed to do and not do. Yeah, because I think we have think so. a fairly clear understanding of you know, just like how the process is sort of at least supposed to work, right? Like people mm-hmm. know there's a general order of operations in terms of what happens upon or following a person's arrest, because we've had that illustrated in the media. But, um, you know, and then, of course, if there's notable cases that do actually, to an extent, unfold in the public eye, which doesn't happen very frequently in Canada, but it no. does occur sometimes. Oh, I know one that I, that I sort of skipped by quickly is that if the crime that you're charged with has a maximum penalty of five years or, or more, that can be put in front of a jury. But typically in Canada, the only cases that must go in front of a jury by tradition are murder or manslaughter. Oh, interesting. And they, and they that must, is very interesting. And they, and they must have a jury. In a lot of other cases, we find ways to avoid juries because judges know a lot more about the law than juries do. So, for instance, if I'm making a technical legal argument for my defense, I probably want to do that in front of a judge and not in front of a jury. So who ultimately gets to decide if it's a judge trial or a jury trial? Ultimately, it's typically the, the, the Crown Attorney because they can do something. For example, there's a mechanism called direct indictment where you can be indicted to a higher court directly and, and put in front of a jury. But typically, that's negotiated back and forth on, on what's appropriate and why why a defense team or, or, or a prosecution team might want to have a jury. We see much, much fewer juries in Canada than we do in the United States. They have much more of a tradition of you have the right to be judged by you know, 12 of your peers. 
Right. So yeah. it's like a lot more jury duty overall. Yeah. But we, we, we tend to put our system a lot of trust in judges in the same, particularly if I'm having a technical legal argument on why they haven't made their case. I want a judge to make that decision, not the jury, because despite all the explaining in the jury instructions from a judge, they're going to have a more difficult time understanding that argument, not, not because they're not smart people, they just have no training. When they right. may not understand the implications of the technicality I'm trying to argue. So I, I think that's everything that I can think of out of those eight sections. As a, as a base, I mean, we could, we could literally spend days on each section and look at individual cases and whatever. But in the context of this podcast, I don't think that that particularly helps people the, the, fine, the fine details of a particular case or a particular right. Oh, come on, you don't you don't think the people listening want like a 40-minute episode about each section of the legal rights section of the of the charter? I certainly hope they don't. <laughs> <laughs> they want like the mini seminar series. I think if they really want things at that level, they should consider going to law school. <laughs> so not be providing that as a Cole's notes version of this. Well, thank you, Peter, for enlightening us on the lengthy legal rights section. I know the previous episodes we've gotten into more than one section of the charter or one, I guess, basket of charter sections in an episode, but I think it was good to kind of more thoroughly go through those legal rights in one piece rather than mixing them with Well, that, that's other definitely stuff. true because A, these rights are so important and B, they're almost half of the sections of the charter, so. Yeah. Although they're all, they're all interlinked. Thanks for doing that. And thank you everyone for joining us. And we will see you next time. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks, Peter. Talk this week. Thanks for listening to Peter. How does the government work? You can reach us by email at howdoesthegovernment at gmail.com or on Twitter at howdoesgovt work with questions or corrections. Or send us an audio message at speakpipe.com slash howdoesgovt work as we get unconfused together. Mm-hmm.